put... Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. We've been talking a lot about atonement theories lately. Of course, recently I, I talked with Reverend Willie Grills from the Lutheran Church. In the past, I've talked to Terrell Givens and Paul Toscano about their views on the atonement theories, and as well as uh, Dr. Chris Thomas from the Pentecostal Church. So what I thought I would do is I'd put together this little episode on atonement theories. I've got a link here for uh, the other references to atonement theories. It's been kind of a fun topic to discuss lately. And I wanted to uh, just have this kind of shorter segment um, with Reverend Willie Grills. And uh, then you can compare with Paul Toscano and Terrell Givens and Chris Thomas on kind of different views of the atonement. So anyway, check out our conversation. Another thing that I wanted to talk to you about was atonement theory. I've got a, an interview with the Paul Toscano. Um, he's yeah. definitely uh, not a mainstream LDS belief on, on atonement theories, but um, would you? There are five theories that I you know, look at on the on the great uh, expert website Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to to run these by you and. Uh, see how where lutheranism fits in i think i know the answer but so there's five basic ones moral influence ransom satisfaction penal substitution and governmental first of all are you familiar with those five different i'm familiar with with yeah most of them uh yeah moral influence ransom christus victor satisfaction theory uh you know governmental the governmental theory um is basically just, yeah, uh, that's more of a Methodist thing, I think. But, um, yeah, okay. I'm familiar with most of them. Okay. Can you give us a, a brief, very brief, what, what's moral influence? What does that mean as far as atonement theory? Yeah, moral influence is going to be uh, that Jesus Christ uh, came about in order to bring about a positive change in humanity. So um, the moral change comes about through his teachings. Uh, he's doing this to be a good example to us. I mean, yes, of course Jesus is an example, but I think that that really does, is an injustice to uh, the atonement, to say that it's just um, that it's just an example. Okay. Um, that it's just a very vivid example of taking up your cross. I will say that while there is one theory that sort of dominates most of Protestant theology, I think as a Lutheran, there are aspects of most of these that we can embrace. Um, and... And so, yeah, um, so we've got, so uh, moral influence theory, uh, ransom theory would be another one. Um, that's a very early one. It's it's the idea, um, okay, so Christ comes to die as a ransom uh, for the sins of the world. Uh, so the, the question is, it's a, it's a ransom sacrifice, but the debate is, is the ransom paid to the devil or is the ransom paid to God the Father? And you can kind of see a more traditional penal view of the atonement coming out of that, right? Mm-hmm. That satisfaction need to be made, a payment need to be made. Um, so who is the payment made to? Is it God or the devil? That would be the uh, the the, uh, the debate. Uh, so the idea is, so Adam and Eve fall, in their fall they sell, uh, they turn humanity over to the devil, so we have to give the devil something to, you know, as a ransom. Uh, that that would be problematic for me, but I think you if you're, if you're paying... The ransom, which does have an Old Testament precedent to God, then it makes more sense. Um, I guess I'm just uncomfortable with paying anything to the devil. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. 
<laughs> right? Uh, okay, so Christus Victor. Um, some would say the Christus, and I don't know if I'm going off the same list of you. I'm just kind of going down yeah, through here. I think so. Uh, some would uh, Christus Victor would be a very popular one throughout the history of the church. And that is essentially that Christ dies to defeat the powers of sin, death, and the devil, and to free mankind from bondage. Um, and I, every Christian kind of has to, to agree with this <laughs> to one degree or another. Um, that in, in his death, um, that in his death, he has conquered the devil. Uh, the devil is, is very much uh, defeated now, uh, and that will be made clear very soon. And he has opened wide uh, the gates of heaven and knocked down the gates of hell and of the dead. And so Christ, um, you know, we believe that in the Apostles' Creed that Christ descended into hell, that Christ uh, descends uh, into hell, into the abode of the dead, uh, to declare victory over, over the demons and uh, to, uh, you know, to inaugurate the kingdom of salvation. So that's very much part of the Christus Victor theory. Um, the satisfaction theory and the penal substitutionary theory I'll kind of uh, take together, uh, but the penal substitutionary one is uh, is basically the one where Christ is punished for the sins of the world, and uh, justice had to be made, uh, that the law of God had to be perfectly fulfilled. Christ does that on our behalf. In doing so, then, uh, through his means, he is able to exchange his righteousness for our unrighteousness. So Christ takes upon our unrighteousness and atones for it, and in exchange gives us His righteousness. And the issue people have with the with the satisfaction theory or the penal substitutionary theory is uh, they don't like the idea of Jesus being punished for sins that aren't His own or for God punishing Him. And I and I realize that that's a difficult thing for people um, to understand, and I'm and I'm sympathetic with that. I understand why people would see that as bad. But we also understand that Christ willingly does this, that this is a gracious act, and that, and that in that atonement theory, justice must be made and righteousness must be fulfilled. I mean, Christ even set, himself says he must fulfill all righteousness. And so we need that, and, and so that is why Christ does it, uh, and he does it willingly. Uh, but I think the issue people have is that the Father is punishing him. It's kind of how they see it. And yeah. I mean, is that is that your objection? That's, I would guess? that's my. <laughs> you already knew I have yeah. an objection on that one. But yes, that's yeah. that's true. Okay. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll finish um, so, the summary yeah, and then then we'll, we'll we'll dive into the more details there. Yeah. But. So so you have the government the governmental theory, which is um, you know similar to the penal substitutionary theory, uh, and really I'm trying to really think about how it really differs here. Um, and that's and I think it's mostly because Christ only dies for the church in a judicial way. It's something a little bit uh, strange here. Uh, so that's my very uh, insufficient summary of the of the uh, of the of the governmental theory. And then there's the scapegoat theory, which is um, I mean very similar to ransom theory and penal substitutionary atonement. Right. The sins are laid upon the scapegoat, so the sins are laid upon Christ, and you know Christ takes them. The scapegoat stuff's also very interesting because of you know, who the scapegoat goes out to, but we won't get into that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So thank you. That, that's a very nice, nice summary. So, um, so as far as how the Lutheran church looks at it, um, how, how, what, what do you lean towards? I think that in most of our preaching, undoubtedly penal substitutionary atonement dominates. 
However, Christus Victor is very uh, powerful too. Um, if you go and listen to my sermons, you'll see you know both of those, but I would probably argue that Christus Victor, um, that defeat of sin, death, and the devil, is really what is highlighted. Um, I do believe that's what the world needs to hear more uh, nowadays, um, because if I go and tell someone that you need to have your sins forgiven, uh, and Christ has to suffer for it, we're dealing with people who have no concept of what sin even means. We have to do a very basic thing. And, okay, so what's the big deal? I sin. Well, sin is an enemy. Sin is something that destroys you. Uh, the devil is an enemy that is seeking only what is worse for you. Uh, the world, which is in bondage to sin, um, you know, to explain those things and then show how Christ breaks those chains, I think is very important. I think it's very powerful. I mean, it's biblical, so we need to we need to preach that. Um, that Christ has trampled all of his enemies, and that Christ has come to free you from those things. Not just free you from vices, again, but to free you from uh, that which is that which kills you, that which is sin, uh, that frees you from the curse, that he, is, that he has destroyed that. So both of those two would, would come to dominate, but you'll, you'll find some from a lot of the different theories pulled in. But those two would be the two dominant themes. And I guess my issue, because I think... In a lot of ways, uh, LDS are very sim- would have similar beliefs with what you just said, kind of Christus Victor and penal substitution. Um, yeah. The the scripture does bring to my mind: Can can mercy rob justice? You know, there's a there's a big theological case in the Book of Mormon about that, which really seems to be kind of penal substitution. You know, every time I ask a theologian like you or Chris Thomas or Paul Toscano. Um, they kind of shy away from what is what is atonement theology in the Book of Mormon, uh, and maybe that's this is just my obsession well, with it. But I, I mean, just I, I think, don't like I penal that... substitution. I, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you receive the benefits of it, you'd like it. But... Well, yeah, <laughs> but but I guess I mean, I, my issue I think that's is the thing. I why think does it's, Jesus? I think it's... Why does Jesus? Right. Why does God have to punish Jesus? Um, you yeah. know. For my sins. Well, and then, like, and what, then what did too, Jesus you know, do to? The, yeah. what, what did you know? Jesus. Well, what is what is any sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament? What is a, a turtle dove? What is what do they do? I think uh, it's barbaric. Of, it's awful. I hate it. <laughs> I think it's Stone Age thinking. Well, yeah, but but I would be you know I would caution with that thinking because it, it was instituted by God. And um, now you might disagree with that. Well, see, uh, I would argue with that is is that. I don't. I don't think mankind understands God very well, and man probably misinterpreted what God really wanted. That would be my my thing, and that God <laughs> right, kind of let but, it go. Yeah. You know? yeah, but see that that would be the presupposition there. Um, but I would presuppose that the scriptures are are um, that they say what they mean, and that they're that they're accurate and inerrant. And I don't mean to say I'm not trying to put words in your mouth or or anything like that, but. I mean, the scriptures present this as God setting up this system. Uh, we also believe that all of the Old Testament system is a type of Christ. So that, yeah, yeah, you know, Christ does appear in the Old Testament in these theophanies, but everything uh, points and testifies to Christ. So all the whole temple system for us is pointing toward that great and final sacrifice of Christ. And so it is meant to point us toward that, um, I think that part of the severity of the sacrifices is meant to show us just how serious sin is. The wages of sin is death. 
And so that as we stray further from God, this is meant to, to show us you know, just what that means. So if we can look at it as God is teaching us, and, and you, can, you, know, you can say teaching, teaching, teaching us through the lens of culture if you want, but if God is actually teaching us through that um, and is ultimately going to bring about good, um, then, then there is a purpose behind it. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of like any, anything that's difficult or what we would see as barbaric, um, God doesn't permit it and certainly doesn't establish it without a, uh, a much higher purpose. I mean, I just look at the whole Old Testament. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hate to say this because it sounds blasphemous, but sometimes God's a jerk, you know? <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say he's a jerk. Sometimes God is uh, rather stern, <laughs> to put it lightly. You know, but, I, but wipe you know, out the um, whole village. You know, the walls come tumbling yeah. down. Everybody die. Kill all the cattle. Everything. Like, yeah, God. When God makes that's a point, not God you know, of love. But, that, but that same God uh, saw His people through the wilderness, and that same God um, showed mercy to to many, to many. And that same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has uh, now brought about the salvation of the entire world. So See, for all of the for all of that, you know. Um, you know, it ultimately ends ends in mercy. The same God flew a couple of planes into the World Trade Center, though, right? No, uh, mean, two, uh, two, two you, pilots. You can did take it, it that that way, and people do. That's that's my issue. Is yeah. Yeah. that God's a jerk? You know, I don't I don't want to worship that God. Who who you know, or or if we sure. if we take it in a Mormon context, you know, God came to the Lafferty brothers mm-hmm. and said, "Hey, you got to kill Brenda Lafferty and her daughter or the baby. I don't know if it was a boy or girl." Right, um, right, yeah. That um, God, I don't like heaven, that guy. Right. He's a jerk. Uh, I, I would right, rather, but, but, but I literally I would, would rather that, go to hell if that's what God right. required of me. But here's the thing. Um, but just because someone says that, I mean, because we're dealing with two different things now. So the scripture which attributes things directly to God to suppose revelations where people are doing it in the name of God. And that's the rub. Who has who has the right voice? By what standard? And that's where the rub is. I, well, neither you or I believe that God told the Lafferty brothers to kill that woman and her baby. Right. I don't think so. Anyway. And I don't think um, that he told those Muslims to fly into the World Trade Center. Of course not. But no, I question no, no. whether God said, yeah, walk around Jericho seven times and kill everybody there. Right, but I, I but, question that God. Yeah. I, I, you know, I know that's the yeah. biblical interpretation and the standard traditional sure. thing. I understand that, yeah. but to me, that is just a, a the same bad projection as as the Muslims who flew into the World Trade Center. Right, but God does predict a lot of this that, that people would say this, and His answer is basically is essentially, "I'm God," and. Uh, don't question me, um, but See, at the same time, you're. <laughs> but it's not satisfactory, right? No, it's, it's not like at a all. lot of people. <laughs> because and well, because I mean, here's the of, thing: Joseph Smith can say, yeah. "I believe God told me to practice polygamy," and I, I'm pretty sure you would say, I, "I don't think that was a true revelation of God." And I and I have a big question about that. Um, well, see, yeah, and that's the tricky thing for you because I can sit here and say that, um, you know, I believe. That the scriptures are inspired and errant. I believe pretty much all the traditional things about, you know, I believe it happened, and I believe that God, you know, uh, told people to do this. And I'm going to wrestle with those difficulties when t- when dealing with people. How could God allow this? Um, from a bit of a different angle, now than someone who believes uh, in continuing revelation, because you're dealing with it in a live way, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, I'm looking back at the historical record, and you're you have to deal with it in. 
I mean, you would have an issue with polygamy, but you would also believe that Joseph Smith is a prophet, correct? Yeah, but I can name a lot of bad things a lot of biblical prophets did that were awful. Uh, Abraham, number and, one. And, right, I, I got lots of problems with Abraham. <laughs> right, but that's the apologetic there. Um, you know, I think that the, the real issue, you know, if we want to talk about prophecy, would be do these prophecies come to pass more than the moral character? Because if we're looking at people's moral character in the Bible outside of Jesus Christ, nobody comes out clean. Right. Um, and so... Uh, the, uh, the you know so yeah I mean you have but, you were going to struggle with these in a different way like Mountain Meadow well that's kind of a different one because there's debate on that right yeah there's there's really no debate among the LDS that among official LDS that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy oh that um, he practiced it absolutely right and so that if you and then and then you have to wrestle with that right because it's in Revelations and Doctrine and Covenants. Mm-hmm. So, but, I so mean, I can still look inspired. at the Bible, you know, if, if I put my Bill Maher hat on and say, well, look, the Bible <laughs> regulates yeah. slavery and, and you know, right. Lot slept with his daughter and Noah got drunk and, and you sure. know, uh, what's his name? The guy who got swallowed by the shark. Um, Jonah. Jonah. Or I guess it was a big fish. I shouldn't say shark. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, you know, Jonah was a racist you know, well, Abraham well, Abraham threw his polygamous wife and kid out to die in the desert. But God you know. God provides for them in the desert. You, you don't forget God provides for them. But but what uh, kind of a Christian? And I know it's not Christian. But what kind of a Christian is Abraham to to treat to mistreat somebody so badly? You know, and so, and and Jacob steals the birthright from Esau, and I mean, there's so yeah, much, I'll, there's so much dysfunction there in, is, yeah, and that's, in the that's Bible that I for, that I'm saying, hey, Joseph yeah. Smith's not that different. But that's good news for you and me because um, if if so great as sinners like them can be redeemed, and if God can bring about the Savior of the world through their lineage, I mean, this is what God works with. God is working through sinful people. And, and it's very ugly, and history is ugly. And God is working beautiful things even through the ugliness. And that's what we have to look through. I mean, if we, we can choose to look around the world today, and I think the, the racist stuff and the slavery stuff is, is a bit conditioned too by, um, by the time in which we live. I mean, Paul himself says all Cretans are liars. But if I said all people from Ohio are liars, I would probably get in some mild trouble for that, right? For all people, you know... So there are, there are, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the language, I'm, I'm a bit careful with sort of language policing on stuff because there's a lot of loaded terms there, but the ancient world speaks much more harshly than we do. The 16th century people speak a lot more harshly than we do. And even look at the way that you've seen uh, Christians in the 19th century dialogue. It's, it's a lot more pointed than it would be today. But, so we've got a, a bit of a cultural softening as far as our discourse. But go back through all of these dark things in the scriptures, and you do find God uh, working in and through them. And that, that, to me, is something we have to see, that God is, we, God's not working through perfect people. God is working to bring about the salvation of the world through a sinful mass, and he works good out of it. And, and that's a beautiful thing. Well, um, I like that Jesus thought. Is, I, it's just, I, I feel like um, when talking with Protestants in particular, you know, they can look at Joseph Smith's polygamy as this horrible thing, and, and the Danites is this horrible thing. And I'm like, have you read the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, the Danites. Have you really um, read the Bible? You know, the the Nauvoo Legion, the Danites, those things are a little bit tricky for me because, um, you know, I choose to read that record. A lot of the Danites are different. We can talk about those separately. But, you know, Joseph Smith, the early Mormons are portrayed as some kind of conquering military force. But a lot of that is built up in reaction to persecution. And if we're being fair, and I think I talk about this in the episodes, uh, regardless of where you fall theologically, um, you know, they were... They were treated rather violently at that by some people. And so we don't want to condone that. Oh, cool. Um, i trying to remember what else we need to talk about. Um, do you have any questions for me? We haven't talked about uh, the well, Word of Wisdom. You know, I think that's your, your thing, right? Yeah, let's, let's, well, I got one question, then we'll, we'll talk about Word of Wisdom. Um, so it was all the way back in Atonement, and I didn't get to ask it. Uh, okay. This is something that's always confusing me. Now, when I read theology... Um, you know, I like a good systematics, so I'll still pull out Mormon doctrine and to try to figure out, even though it's outdated. And I feel like sometimes, maybe the the when the LDS uh, theologians today, I feel like they maybe soften or you know, kind of fudge a little bit on clearer statements. Um, so the atonement's always been interesting. So if you look at a lot of anti-Mormon tracts, they'll say that Mormons only believe the atonement happened in Gethsemane. But that doesn't seem to be uh, the case when I hear, like, say, back to Bruce McConkie. You look at Bruce McConkie's, what I'll, what I'll call it, the final testimony. Uh, he says, I testify that Christ, you know, atoned at Gethsemane and Golgotha. So, all the theories aside, where do you believe that the atonement happened? How does Gethsemane figure into that, I guess, is my question. Because we don't, we don't believe that it really happened, you know, at, at Gethsemane. When you're talking about the atonement as far as the price that he paid for our sins, is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's, it's typically pictured as Christ's atonement either happens or begins at Golgotha. Well, or, excuse me, at, at, see, at Gethsemane. Where... Of course it happened at Golgotha. <laughs> or, am I, or am I bumping this into folk where I, I just want to reject all the penal substitution and ransom theory <laughs> altogether because it's just to me it's so barbaric and awful. I would much rather talk about moral influence or or um, Christus Victor. To me, those are much yeah. more appealing. Um, yeah. But uh, because I just feel like the LDS church is very tied to penal substitution, and I, I, don't, I don't like it. <laughs> so, to answer your question, what's the official thing, not what's my thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah um, the official thing, yeah, not the Benedite position. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm much more of a Christus Victor and a moral influencer view of atonement, and I like it. I like it way better, and so I, I hate this question. I'll, I'll just say, um, <laughs> but yeah, from the the uh, quote unquote official, um, I kind of, and I hate to say this because I, I disagree with Bruce R. McConkie a lot, but I kind of think he might be right on that one. Um, kind of a combination of on the cross and in the garden, um, you know, where where. <sighs> And to me, this is so barbaric. Once again, this is why I don't like penal substitution. That Jesus bled from every pore as he's praying in the garden. That's horrible. Like, what kind of a God would do that? <laughs> like, Jesus, yeah, they, here, well, I'm going to make you bleed I mean, from every pore because you got to pay for everybody's sins. I, I just I don't right. like it. Well, and, like then, it. and then, see, there's an ontological difference here with the way we view God, too. Because we, I mean, I'm, we're Trinitarian. We believe in one God. Uh, united uh, three persons 
same divine essence, you're dealing with two different beings of flesh and bone, mm-hmm. and two different. Uh, and so I think that that colors that a little bit too. Um, that there's a potential, perhaps, in Mormon theology for a disagreement between the Father and the Son. Not that that's ever that you officially teach that, but at least it's theoretically possible. Uh, but we believe that God is one, and you you would have. Uh, I mean, the Father and the Son are not one. Maybe one in purpose. I understand that, but but not one in in essence or being. Well, so go ahead. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. So you know my. My whole thing is, uh, and I'd love to get into a kind of a Trinity thing because I think <laughs> I, I love the Godhead because it's to me it's so much more understandable than the Trinity. Um, and I think I well, think you well, and I have yeah, talked but, about that Lutheran satire website, which is I think is awesome. Yeah, that, ta- that talks and about uh, the Trinity. That guy is he is one he is part of our denomination, by the way. Yeah. So, so those, that's hilarious. Come on, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, at least hey, you took you you can take jokes well. So that's I'm going to have <laughs> to uh, see if I can get permission to show that because I think it's hilarious. Um, do, do you know? Who, we'll talk yeah, after. Hans, I'll see if you can yeah, give me some, yeah. some permission to use that because I think it's so hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't think you'll, you'll have a problem using that. Oh, really? So, well, that'd be cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure Hans will be fine with that. <laughs> um, so, the uh, yeah so because um, doesn't let yeah. me ask you this because I think Chris Chris Thomas said this um, and I would suspect Lutherans are the same as Pentecostals in this respect that don't most your average run of the mill Lutherans think of the Trinity as dualism. Um, okay, you're gonna have to define what you mean by dualism. Or mo- excuse me, modalism. M- modalism, modalism. Modalism. Yes. Okay. No. Okay. Now I, I'm going to say no. Lutherans don't think of it as as uh, modalism. Uh, we're very big on catechesis. What happens is people are sloppy with their language, and I think a lot of people, because of that, are when they when they try to explain the Trinity, come across as modalists. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what he's saying, uh, and. I mean, you have what appears to me as modalism in the Book of Mormon, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Toscano Paul, is going to agree with you. I haven't published that yet, but it will probably be published yeah. before you see this. You'll yeah, have you, to check you can out my tell that the theological development of Mormonism hasn't happened at the time. Like To me, a lot of what's coming out of the Book of Mormon, it, it feels much more clo- closer to a traditional Christian position mm-hmm. than than what developed, certainly by King Follett, right? Right. By, by the King Follett discourse, things are out there. Um no, some people are very sloppy in their formulation of the Trinity. The Trinity is a mystery, and it's not a, a tight, logical thing like what people want to make it into. Um, it, it, Millet, uh, Dr. Millet does say it's hard to unite around a mystery. That's one of his um, defenses of Mormon uh, theology versus a traditional Christian, uh, a traditional Trinitarian theology. And I'm like, well, that's not really an argument, though. I, th- I think that, that God, yes, he is... He is above us. Um, We're not the same as him, and yet he does take on human flesh. God does become man. He suffers so that he can understand us. So there is a relatability there. God understands us much more than we can really understand him, but um, I'm getting out in the weeds here. Um, Yeah, so I'll give you an example. Uh, Sometimes people try to teach... uh, So modalism, for those that don't know, is the idea that God is sort of sometimes the Father. He'll manifest as the Son. He'll manifest as the Holy Ghost. He, he, he operates in modes, and we don't, uh, we don't believe that. So some people will say, oh, the Trinity is like steam. 
uh, or steam, water, and ice. Yeah, well, that's, that's modalism. modalism. That's, that's modalism. not the Trinity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, an egg would would fail too because that be, that ends up being I don't know sort of tritheism. I guess that might be closer to your position. Um, I mean, would you would accept a tritheism, right? Uh, I'm not sure what you mean polytheism. by tritheism. That there are more. Okay, well, in this case, you would God's say that an embryo, the embryo is that what is, you're saying? <laughs> no, no. Well, uh, at one point, we believe he 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 was um, because because in the womb of the Virgin Mary, uh, there is God the Son, right? Mm-hmm. So he he is he is he is present there. But see, okay, this is Trinitarian theology. I keep keep going off on tangents here, but fitting for the name of the show. Exactly. Uh, so. Yeah, um, but you would believe that the Father and the Son are two separate gods, two separate beings, and yes. two separate beings, and the Holy. We Ghost don't want to be well. too polytheistic so here, we, you know. And I know there was the whole. Yeah. If I, I had a big conversation with Paul Toscano about homoousius versus homoousius. Um, yes. Okay. So Toscano, he's yeah, he's keeping up with the, with the classic debate. Well, he, he actually didn't know what the difference was. I had to explain. <laughs> I was surprised. Yeah, and, <laughs> Yeah, and that's tell what us the we difference between homoousius and homoousius. Okay, because uh, <laughs> that was a big okay. debate in the early Christian church, right? Yes. Okay, so homoousius versus homoousius is uh, the the difference between um, uh, it's one it's literally one iota, right? Exactly. Uh, so. Okay, how do I explain this for people who have never uh, <laughs> who don't understand the Trinity? <laughs> yeah, let me. Um, so um, it's the question of is God of the same substance or of a similar substance? Uh-huh. So the Nicene affirmation is homoousius that God is of the same substance. Homoousius is that uh, the, or the Father and the Son would be of a like substance. Does that okay? Does that make sense? Okay, so, so the idea is homoousius, God and Jesus. This is why I hate the Trinity. Are the same? They're the same substance, right? And homoousius yeah. is God and Jesus are similar, but they're different. Is Correct. that right? Is that is that what the yeah. debate was? Yeah. So are they uh, identical? <laughs> yeah. Um, so we say in the Nicene Creed that they are of the same substance, not of a like substance. So that, for example, we would say that the God of the Old Testament is Jesus. Now you would say that too, uh, but in a different way. You would say that Jehovah is is the Jesus, the Old right? Yeah. The Old God, the Old. Yeah, we would say that too, um, but in a different way because we believe there's one God. So that um, you know, the, the pillar in the cloud in uh, in the Old Testament, that's that's Christ. You know, that's that's the same God. Uh, the, you know, uh, so so that they are of the same substance. Uh, we believe that He is begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. So that he, he is that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, uh, but He is not a created being. And so, whereas in Mormon theology, Jesus would be a created being. Right. You're <laughs> going to have to watch my Paul Toscano interview because he takes big issue with uh, the whole latter um, thing, theology. He says that's all wrong. But he's a heretic anyway, so I guess it doesn't matter what he says. But that's right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he, I mean, it's interesting. He has a different, a very interesting take on that. In fact, he's way more Adam God than I 
anticipated. So well, yeah, this is just kind of blowing my mind here because he's arguing like he's he's over here on a pseudo Trinitarian tract, um, sort of pulling more toward traditional Christianity. But then he would go to Adam God. So what is going yeah. on with with? Yeah. It'll be a you'll, fun interview. You'll have to watch that one for sure. It, it was very interesting. So I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Reverend Willie Grills once again. Willie, thank you so much for sitting down with me and talking about atonement theories. Hopefully it wasn't too radical for either the Lutheran or the Mormon Church. Probably was for both, but anyway. <laughs> so thanks again. In our next conversation, I'm excited to introduce another William, uh, Dr. William Davis, and he's going to talk a little bit about uh, his training in Shakespeare and how that helped him look at chiasmus. Some of my early publications were on Shakespeare's use of complex chiasmus, but then also in terms of how he used it in ways that he incorporated devices from classical rhetoric. Mm. And um, so when I started looking at um, the Book of Mormon, a, a part of it was because it had that interest in chiasmus as well. And I'd, I'd been studying chiasmus before. I first heard about it when I was on my mission. And, uh, and then so it always kind of stuck with me. If you like what we're doing at Gospel Tangents, please support us. Go to gospeltangents.com and you can get full interviews as well as transcripts if you'd like those. So click here to subscribe and over here you can see some of our other great videos. Thanks again.